I heard about a group of passengers got onto an aeroplane, and after takeoff, there was an announcement. A computer-generated voice came over the speakers, and the voice said, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Flight 714. You may not know this, but this is a fully automated flight. There are no pilots or co-pilots in the cockpit. This flight is controlled completely by computer. As you will have seen from our smooth takeoff, computer-directed planes are 100% safe and secure. We want you to sit back and relax and know that nothing can go wrong, go wrong, go wrong. <laughs> we live in a world that seems out of control. That statement was true three years ago before we ever heard the word COVID, and it's even more true in a global pandemic. There's not a nation on earth that hasn't been affected to a greater or lesser degree on top of everything else that's going on in our world. Everywhere you look, there are protests and revolutions and military coups and civil wars. The words of Psalm 46 are played out before us. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. Beyond that, there are personalities and institutions and trends that seem so big and powerful and irresistible and immovable. Sometimes it feels as if the world has gone mad. And we wonder to ourselves, is anyone in control? Is there anyone in the cockpit behind the controls? Perhaps today, though, for you, the tumult and the turmoil of the world is overshadowed by the turbulence of your own personal circumstances. Perhaps in the area of your relationship, or employment, or health, or family, things seem as if they are spiraling out of control. The Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation to a group of Christians who similarly lived in a world that appeared to be out of control. The year is 95 AD, and the emperor Domitian is on the throne of the greatest empire that there has been up until this point, the Roman Empire. He is declaring himself to be Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. Christians throughout the empire are beginning to have to make an agonizing choice. Do they go along to the temple of the emperor and burn a pinch of incense and say the words, Caesar is Lord? Or do they refuse to do that? Certain death. John is writing to men and women who face being thrown to the lions or being torn apart by wild dogs or being burned at the stake or facing the gladiators in mortal combat. John himself has been banished to the island of Patmos, left to bleach and rot in the hot sun, far away from his church, his family, his friends. And it's in this context that John receives a vision that's recorded for us in Revelation chapters 4 through 6. And the things that he sees in this vision are meant to assure him and his readers and us that no matter what may be happening on earth, God is still in control. So why don't you turn with me to Revelation chapter 4, 
Although the entire vision stretches from chapter 4 to chapter 6, we'll focus our attention on just the first third of the vision this morning. And just a reminder from our very first sermon on the book of Revelation, if you can think that far back, the thing is that John sees in this book are symbolic, not photographic. John sees a number of different images whose background actually lies in the Old Testament. And what these images are supposed to do then is stir up in our minds uh, those Old Testament passages and the things that were spoken of there. In other words, these are word pictures, not photographic reproductions, intended to spark our imagination and not to be transferred to the drawing board. And you'll notice too as we read that John uses the word like a lot. Because as one pastor puts it, these are mere words doing the best they can to describe the indescribable. Well, with that in mind, let's turn to God's word. Revelation 4 from verse 1. After this I looked, there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders, They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is God's word. Florence May Chadwick was an American long-distance. She was the first woman to swim across the English Channel in both directions. And on the 4th of July, 1952, she attempted another record. 
She set off swimming from Catalina Island towards the Californian coastline, determined that she would be the first woman to swim the 41 kilometers between the two. She was accompanied by some small boats with people to look out for sharks and to assist her if she got into any trouble. The water was extremely cold. And after swimming for 15 hours, a thick fog rolled in and Florence couldn't see anything. She was tired, she was discouraged, she felt like giving up. Her mom and her trainer urged her to continue because they could sense that they were close to shore. But after swimming for another hour, Florence gave up and she got into one of the boats. It was only then, after she'd given up, that she realized she'd been within one kilometer of the shore. And when she was interviewed afterwards, she said, I'm not excusing myself but if I could have seen the shore, I might have made it. Florence wasn't beaten by the sea or by the cold or even by her tiredness. She gave up because she couldn't see. She couldn't see what things really looked like. And sometimes in our own lives, we give up or we give in because we can't see things for what they really are. We give up. We give up hope, or we give up on a situation, or we give up on a person, or we give in. We give in to despair, we give in to hopelessness, we give in to sin, simply because we fail to see the way things really are. We need a new reality, a new picture. The book of Revelation is an apocalypse, which means an unveiling. In these chapters, the Lord Jesus draws back the curtain to show John and us what things really look like behind the scenes. In fact, I was thinking, if if you wanted a good example of an apocalypse, uh, you'd find it in the Old Testament, in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 6. In that chapter, we read how the Arameans are at war with Israel And Elisha the prophet knows everything that the king of Aram is doing. He gets so fed up because uh, the prophet Elisha will say to the king of Israel, well, don't go down there because the Arameans are down there. Don't set up camp over there because the Arameans have got their camp there. And the king of Aram just says to his troops, you know, who's the spy? Who's telling everybody what's going on? And they say to him, no, it's Elisha the prophet. He knows what you speak in your bedchamber. And so the king of Aram decides, right, I'll go send some troops to capture Elisha. And so we read that one morning Elisha's servant gets up and he sees that the city is surrounded by an army with horses and chariots. And he cries out to Elisha, Oh no, what shall we do? And Elisha replies, Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Which puzzles the servant no end. But the Bible says... Then Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha's servant experienced an apocalypse, an unveiling. The curtain was lifted for him to see a vision, not of some future events, but of a present unseen reality. 
And here in Revelation chapter 4, the Lord Jesus does for John and for us what he did for Elisha's servants. He opens his eyes to see a reality beyond our reality. John doesn't see chariots and horsemen. Instead, he sees a huge throne. The word throne is used 46 times in the book of Revelation. It's found more times in the book of Revelation than in all the other New Testament books put together. Matthew's the next person who uses this word throne a lot. He uses it five times in comparison to 46 times in Revelation. It's the great image of this book. In fact, at the end of the book, at the very end of history, we read that the earth and the sky flee away and all that is left at the center of everything is God's great throne. No matter that all hell may be breaking loose against the church in the Roman Empire, John sees that God is still on his throne. And similarly, no matter what may be going on in our world, in our country, in our lives today, God is is still on his throne. Let's spend some time looking at this throne, and in particular, the one who is seated on the throne. I don't think we need to try and squeeze every drop of meaning from every single symbol, but there are at least five things to note. Firstly, the throne is personal. First thing that John says about this throne is that there is someone seated on it. Verse 2. Once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. This is a vision of supreme headquarters, the control room of the universe, and the seat is not empty. The position is not up for grabs. The throne of the universe is occupied, and God is in control. John doesn't try to describe the person who sat on the throne. He can't because of the brilliance of this figure. It would be like trying to look at the sun, although the brilliance also has the colors and splendors of precious stones. Verse 3, the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. When the prophet Ezekiel had a similar vision of God in Ezekiel chapter 1, He too was just lost for words. And eventually, all he can end up saying is, well, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul describes God as God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. And yet we read on in verse 3 that a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. The reference seems to be to God's promise to Noah And so we're reminded that this magnificent throne is also a throne of grace. That there is a person sat on the throne, someone with whom we can have a personal relationship, someone who invites us to come. But the history of the universe, the history of my life and your life, is not left to chance or to luck or to some impersonal force or to the stars. The history of the universe is controlled by a person. 
Secondly, the one who is on the throne is powerful. In verse 8, the four living creatures refer to the Lord God Almighty. That word slips so easily off our tongue, Almighty God. But it is the Greek word pantokrato. Kratos refers to raw strength, force, power, might. And pantos means all. (laughs) As Pastor Darrell Johnson puts it in his commentary on these verses, all raw strength is sitting on the throne. There is someone sitting on the throne bigger than the whole universe, someone mightier than all the might evil can muster. If this is not so, then prayer is an exercise in futility, or at best wish dreaming. If this is not true, then when we come to the throne with the needs of the world, we might hear, I know, I know. Or we might hear, oh dear, oh dear. But no, Almighty God is on the throne. And the power and the might of this personal God is described in three ways. Firstly, we see his power in terms of authority. In verse 4, we read that surrounding the throne were these 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. We can't be 100% sure, but it seems as if these represent the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. Because in chapter 21, we're told that the new Jerusalem has 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes and 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles. And so it seems that these 24 elders represent all the people of God of all time. God has authority over his people, the church. In verses 7 and 8, we read about these four living creatures that are around the throne with eyes symbolizing their all-seeing and their knowledge. The imagery reflects Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah chapter 1 of those angelic beings crying, Holy, Holy. These living creatures seem to represent the entire created order because there was a rabbinic tradition that said that the mightiest among the birds is the eagle, the mightiest among domestic animals is the ox, the mightiest among wild animals is the lion, and the mightiest of them all is man. In other words, God has authority over creation. Next week, we'll read on in chapter 5 about the many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times, 10,000. In other words, God has authority over all the angelic realm. And then chapter 5 and verse 13 ends by saying, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them sing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. God has authority over everything. As one pastor says, there is nothing in heaven or earth or under the earth that is outside of this king's reign and rule. No politician, no boss, no king, no emperor, no government, no community. There's no area of human life that this king Cannot enter. So the one on the throne has powerful authority, but then he also, there is powerful action. The one who sits on the throne is the creator 
and the sustainer of everything. Verse 11, we read how the 24 elders sing, You created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. God has created everything. In astronomy, he created the hundred billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. And our Milky Way galaxy is just one of a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. Or in nature, God is the one who made the tiny sponge-like cushion between the woodpecker's head and its beak so that when it drills a hole, it doesn't knock itself out. might not mean much to you, but it's a big deal to the woodpecker. Or within your body right now as you're sat here, your heart beats 100,000 times a day. You give birth to 100 billion red blood cells every day. Your brain is the most complex structure known to man. Your eyes can distinguish one million light surfaces. Your lungs are big enough to cover half a tennis court. Your skin is constantly replacing itself. Your blood goes on a 60,000-mile journey around your body. Just by walking, you exercise over 250 muscles. By touching something or someone, you send a message to your brain at 124 miles an hour. You are amazing, and your maker and sustainer is Almighty God. If we were to remove his hand from the universe for a moment, everything would fly apart into subatomic particles. And then, too, we see God's powerful action in terms of control, in his ability to control and overcome evil and chaos. Because in verse 6, we read about before this throne, there being a sea of glass as as clear as crystal. Uh, In Canaanite mythology, the sea was an angry goddess, Yam, who needed to be overthrown by Baal, the supreme Canaanite god. Interestingly, too, the Canaanites had a story about a flood. In their account, the gods lose control over this raging sea, and they are lost to know what they can do. And in a similar way, the Israelites did not like the sea. They were not a seafaring people. They hired boats from Tyre and Sidon. To them, it was a scary place full of monsters like Leviathan and Behemoth, They didn't think of the sea as being an uncontrollable goddess, but they did believe that only Almighty God could control the powerful sea. And so this picture of a sea of glass seems to represent God's sovereignty over chaos and disruption. The God brings calm to chaos. In fact, at the end of the book, in chapter 21, we're told that in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no longer any sea, which I don't believe means we will lose the beauty of a seascape, but that the awful destruction and chaos and fear associated with the sea will be no more. Don't we need this picture today? That God is the one who calms the chaos of our world and of our lives and who still says to the storm, peace, be still. And it becomes as clear and as still as crystal. 
So the one seated on the throne is the Almighty. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He's the one who stills the storms of chaos. And by virtue of the fact that he is creator of all, he is also the authority over all. Thirdly, this throne radiates perfection and beauty. The rainbow, the sea of glass, the white robes, the crowns, it's a picture of glorious perfection. That nothing ugly or imperfect or flawed or damaged or incomplete is here. Just going back to that image of light that permeates the vision. Think of the words of John himself in 1 John chapter 5 where he says, This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Image of perfection. Which leads fourthly to the purity of this throne and the one seated on it. Verse 8, day and night the living creatures never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The word holy literally means separate. It means that God is absolutely unique. No one, nothing like him. Infinitely valuable. Morally perfect, separate from sin, and permanent, eternal. And notice that these incredible angelic beings, who if we saw them, we would be tempted to worship, look directly at God and they sing holy. There's a sense of reverence and awe. And while indeed John tells us in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love, these angelic beings don't sit around and sing Love, 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 like the Beatles might. It's holy, holy, holy. It's the otherness of God, his purity, his perfection that they celebrate. And then fifthly, we see that this throne is permanent. Verse 8 again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God is unchanging. The same God that we read about in John's day, the same God that we read about in Isaiah's day, is the same day today and forever. He is unchanging and permanent. The figure of Domitian may have loomed large in the minds and lives of these Christians, but within one year he would be dead. The Roman Empire itself has now long since ceased to exist. And other empires and kingdoms and kings and princes and presidents have all come and gone. But, verses 9 and 10, the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. And the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. At the center of everything, there is a permanent throne. We've stepped forward to look at some of the details of this vision, but let's step back again and consider it as a whole and what it might mean for our lives right now today. And out of the many implications and applications that we could look at, I'd like to just highlight three. Firstly, We need to keep on fixing our eyes on what is unseen. That heaven is closer than we think. 
The vision that John has here does not take place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, nor is it a vision of the distant future. It's a present, unseen reality. God is on his throne, surrounded by countless worshippers. And if we could somehow push through the curtain, we would see this. Not necessarily this identical vision, because remember this is symbolic, but we would see God seated on his throne. And so in this chapter, John actually invites us to look. Verse 1 literally reads, After this I looked, and behold, look, a door standing open in heaven. The word look is repeated again and again and again throughout the book of Revelation. John invites us to look, to look with the eyes of faith and see something that ordinarily we couldn't see. It's the same invitation that we saw in 2 Corinthians 4 a few weeks ago where Paul says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And we do this by spending more time in God's Word than we spend on News 24 or Facebook or SABC 1. If we want to see things from God's perspective, we need to keep on reading what he has revealed to us about himself and our world and our future in his word and to look at his power and beauty as it's displayed in our world. So fortunate in Cape Town that we can step out of our house and walk down the road and see something of the beauty and the majesty of God. Fix our eyes on what is unseen. Secondly, this chapter invites us to trust God. God is on his throne. We'll see next week in chapter 5 that not only is God on his throne, but in his right hand is a scroll with a plan for the universe and a plan for your life and a plan for my life in his, in his hand. God is in control. And again, if we just spend time listening to the radio and watching television and surfing the internet, then we might come to the opposite conclusion, that the throne of the universe is empty, that no one is in control, or worse yet, that there's been a revolution and that the powers of evil and chaos have taken over. But no, John says, look again. There is a throne with someone seated there. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 record the central vision, in fact, of the book of Revelation. Everything else in the book of Revelation has to be read in the light of this vision. The rest of the book is unintelligible without this vision. In the weeks that lie ahead, we're going to read about dragons and beasts and bulls and trumpets and locusts and all sorts of horrible things, and we might get ourselves tied up in all sorts of knots unless we first clearly see this vision of God on his throne in control. And not only does the book of Revelation need to be read in the light of this vision, but our very lives need to be read in the light of this vision too that God is on his throne, and his throne is personal, powerful, perfect, pure, and permanent. And thirdly, the only appropriate response to all that we've looked at today is worship. In his commentary on this passage, Paul Beasley Murray writes these words. He says, If we are to know God at all, 
We must know him as the unfathomable mystery, a mystery to be explored only by the humility of worship. That's a great line. (laughs) This vision is an unfathomable mystery. It's a mystery that we're invited to explore, but we can only do so through the humility of worship. Worship is one of those wonderful activities that works both ways, in a sense. That when I read God's word, when I look at this passage of scripture, when I speak to him as I'm walking along the beach, that experience leads me to worship him. And conversely, in the times when I feel overwhelmed or I feel things are out of control, I can begin to worship God and thank him, which changes my picture of who he is and changes the picture of my circumstances too. Two weeks ago, on Tuesday, I was having a rough day. I know you can't believe this, but pastors have rough days as well. There was a lot going on in my life and in the life of my family. And added to that, we had a friend visiting from Bloemfontein who needed dropping at the airport at half past four on Wednesday morning. So I I got up and I grabbed a cup of coffee and I took her to the airport. And as I was driving back home, I thought to myself, well, there's no point in trying to go back to bed now. I know, let me drive down to Seapoint and watch the sunrise. So I did. Got there about five in the morning, pitch dark, um, dodgy looking characters wandering around. Um, And so I stayed in my car for a bit and watched the, the light of the moon on the dark sea. And then I saw a few joggers, so I thought it was safe. And I got out of my car and began to walk just along the promenade. Cannot adequately describe to you the beauty and the magnificence of that sunrise. It didn't matter in which direction I looked. If I looked towards the right and towards the Hottentot Holland Mountains, there was this bright orange glow. And if I looked out to the left towards the sea, um, the, the sky was this bright pink color And the sea itself, because it was so calm, was alternatingly pink and dark blue. There was this huge white moon that was setting into the sea on the left. And if I looked behind me, there was Devil's Peak and Lion's Head slowly being lit by a soft yellow light. In Habakkuk chapter 3, the prophet says, God's glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. I just stood at the railings and looked and sang some hymns quietly into my mask, which you can do now when you're wearing a mask. And coming away from that sight into a new day changed everything. On the one hand, nothing was different. I still had the same worries and difficulties and challenges to face in the rest of the day. But on the other hand, everything had changed. I'd caught something, just the tiniest part really, but something of a vision of the power and the beauty and the purity and the magnificence of God. God was on his throne and I could face the rest of the day with confidence. And I trust and pray that just a tiny glimpse of God in this passage will sustain us today and in this week that lies ahead. And that we will keep on coming back to these verses and others like them that remind us that God is on his throne 
and is in control of the universe and of our very lives too. Let's pray together. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Thank you, Lord God of the universe, that you still think of me and you care about me. Amen.